at the risk of sounding sensational or weird. In the last 24 hours, I felt God speak a word on my heart. After preparing a sermon, I was done with this thing Thursday. And I always ask God, if there's something you want me to say that I haven't prepared to say, give me the courage to say it. In the last 24 hours, I felt there was a specific way God wanted me to open up this sermon. I woke up this morning at 3.30, and sometimes when this happens to me, I don't know if it's the blackened tilapia I ate last night or if it's God waking me up for a specific purpose. And I felt myself praying at 3.30, and it was the same theme. It was God saying, start off your sermon by telling people, someone in the room just needs to hear, don't give up. And I don't know who that's for, if it's just for one person. And I don't know what that means. God didn't give me anything more specific than don't give up. I don't know if it means don't give up on a relationship or don't give up on a job or don't give up on faith or don't give up on life. I don't know. I know God's not going to ask you to stay in something where there may be some abuse or something that doesn't align with the heart of God. But if that is for you and if you need someone to help discern what that means, please reach out to me or another leader. I want to welcome everybody here today. I want to welcome those who are joining us on live stream. So glad you're with us. If you're here in this room and you're a guest, please take out, take a moment to fill out the card. Well, you don't have a bulletin today, right? So we're still going to make it, but give us a chance to get to know you. I'm sure you were raised in a family, whether it was parents, grandparents, guardians, uncles, and aunts, where there were repeated things that you heard continuously that were meant to help form you and who you are and to make good decisions in life. There are certain phrases you've probably heard growing up, stuff like, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Statements I vowed I would never say as a dad, but yet I say it quite often. That it's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's the size of the fight in the dog. Or growing up, there was a repeated phrase, if you just don't tell dad bad news on an empty stomach, you make sure dad is eaten before you share anything that may be a little negative before dad. And my mom would meet us before we left the house to go hang out with friends or go to a party or whatever it may be. My mother would give us a big hug at the front door. My mom, the last thing we would hear is, remember whose you are. This is before Mufasa said it in Lion King, all right? I think they got it from my mom. But remember whose you are. There are these repeated statements and themes that are, have been present in your life, whether they're things you laugh at now or things that help form you. And there are repeated things throughout the Bible. So I'm always trying to pay attention to themes that show up over and over again throughout the Bible, repeated themes. So this morning, I want to launch a sermon series that's going to go for the next six to seven weeks. I'm so excited about this one. Uh, and, and here's the thing. What is the place in the Bible that the Bible quotes more than anything else in the Bible? So this could be a trivia question. You can go ask people this week for fun if you ever do that, all right? What is the place in the Bible, the Bible quotes of the Bible more than anything else in the Bible? And the answer is it comes in Exodus 34. Now, there are themes that show up over and over again in the Bible, like love and, and fasting or baptism, and you can find themes and words that show up a lot, but as far as what the Bible quotes in the Bible, word for word, what the Bible quotes from the Bible more than anything else is in Exodus chapter 34, and it's God talking about God's self. In Exodus 34, verse 5, you read this. Then the Lord came down in the cloud, and God stood there with him, and that's Moses it's referring to, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, and here it is. Here's what's quoted in the Bible, by the Bible, more than anything else. This is God talking about himself. God talking about God's self. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
maintaining steadfast love for the thousandth generation and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. And let me show you just a few places where this shows up. Because this is something that's quoted for hundreds or over a thousand years in the Old Testament. And then there are themes that are picked, that, that are picked up all throughout the New Testament. Because Jesus comes to live this out in the flesh. In Numbers 14 verse 18, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Nehemiah 9, 17 says they refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Psalm 103, 8, it's something David picks up on multiple times. The Lord is compassionate and, slow, and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Psalm 145, 8, the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in steadfast love. And my favorite is in Jonah. Because Jonah's gone to a land, has preached a message, and Jonah didn't want people to turn to the Lord. And Jonah's angry in chapter 4 because God actually did what God said he would do. And Jonah says this, and it's almost like this sarcastic way. It's like Jonah saying, he prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to for, uh, forestall by fleeing the Tarshish. I knew, it's like Jonah saying, I knew you, you are what people have said you are for years. That you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. Now, there are two things I think are really important about this. Is whenever you see common threads, repeated threads show up over and over again throughout the Bible, you need to listen up. Because that means these are stories that are being shared from one generation to another generation. When people are sitting around a campfire or around a meal with their grandchildren and they're thinking about what are the parts of God and the parts of faith I want to hand on to the next generation, this seems to be a really big part of it. So you need to pay attention. The other thing is this. Anytime in the Bible you have God talking about himself, you need to listen up. This is a time where God gives himself a name, but he does more than just giving himself a name. He describes his own character. Now, there are times throughout the entire Bible, especially the Old Testament, where you have people who give God a name, like Jehovah Jireh or El Shaddai, like God, you, you provide, and, and things like that. But this is a time when God gives himself a name. Here's who I am. And then he describes his character and who he is. Now, here's what's really cool about this. That this all comes from a request that Moses made. And the request he makes is in the chapter before that. In, in chapter 33, verse 18, Moses says this, God, show me your glory. Now, I always want to encourage people. You need to be really careful when you pray a prayer like, God, show me your glory. Because whenever you pray for God to show you his glory, rarely do people stand in the presence of God with smiles on their faces when this happens. Usually they're on their faces feeling as if they are going to die. I remember one person said, you need to watch out when you pray with boldness and courage because you may need to put on a hard hat because there's no telling what may come crashing down from heaven. Show me your glory is Moses' request. Now, God and Moses are having this conversation on a mountain. When Moses asked for God to show him his glory and when God begins describing who he is, when God describes his nature and his character found in chapter 34. And they're on a mountain where they've been for around 40 days. And as they are on a mountain, the people of God are down at the bottom of the mountain waiting for their leader to come back. And then they get to a point where they don't even know if their leader's going to come back. Maybe he's dead. 
He's over 80. Maybe that little button that's calling for help isn't working. Maybe he broke his hip. Maybe God consumed him. Maybe he got lost. So they start doing things that weren't in, align, in alignment with who God is. Now, if you remember, this is just a few months after coming out of slavery. When dignity had been stripped from them. Where the people of God were slaves. They weren't free. They have a master. And, and how hard it was in slavery. And now they've been set free. They've experienced God's deliverance. His deliverance. But they're not in an established land yet. Have you ever been in that place in your own life? When you've tried to leave sin and to go into a new place. But you're like suspended in between the two. Or you're, you've left one place and you're moving to another place, but there's just that transition period where you're trying to find your way, not really sure how you're going to find it. There are a few road signs that come to mind as I've been thinking about this sermon. And the first one is this, if you show this sign. Now, I don't think for most of you this is a sign that conjures up a lot of anger or road rage. This is a sign that whenever you see it, you have to think to yourself... Am I going to break this law or not? Like, is this really that, that important of a law? Like, I'm not really mad about this, but I need to make a U-turn. I bet there's one of you in this church who made this mistake this morning coming to this church. Because if you're coming from Bartlett and you missed the first entrance over here, then there's not a way for you to turn left over on this side. So you go down and you could go all the way down to the next light and turn into auto zone and then come back out. Or you could just make a U-turn even though it's not supposed to be legal on Sycamore View Road. So when you come to this sign right here, you've got to make a decision. How important is it that I make a U-turn? And if there is a sign that God was putting in front of his people after he delivered them from Egypt, throughout the rest of the book of Exodus, throughout Numbers and Leviticus, it's probably this one. How many times do you hear the people of God as they were set free and they're journeying in this wilderness for 40 years. How many times do you have them say things like, let's just, let's just go back to Egypt. It was better there. At least we had food there. We had water there. And I could see God putting this sign in front of them. No, don't turn around. Because it's not better where you used to be. We're going to a better place. Yet sometimes when you're in that in-between, it can be difficult. Now here's a sign that probably does bring up a lot of anger in your life. It's, it's something like this. Because this lets you know that you're approaching something where lanes are going to have to merge. There's going to be some traffic. So this one, you're left with a decision. Do you just stay in the line where you know you're going <laughs> to, that, that you know this is the lane you need to be in? Or do you stay in the other lane until the last minute, hoping there'll be some kind driver in Memphis, which there aren't many of them left, who will let you in? Am I right? <laughs> and then you have other signs like when you're driving down a road and it's just the road close. This can frustrate you. You got somewhere to be. You got to pick up the kids. You got to get to your work. And then there's the last sign I wanted to show that can just frustrate us. Because you don't know if the detour means you're going to get off the interstate and stay on the front of the road for a minute and then get back on. Or is this detour going to lead you all the way down into a little downtown of a small town and, then, and bring you back up? You just don't know where it's going to go. And as the people of God are at the Mount, Mount Sinai, and then throughout the wilderness, it's like God is taking them on all these detours. And in your own life, I bet there are a lot of detours that have happened in your life. Where you've been suspended between two places. And you've been in an in-between place and in transition. And what does it mean to be faithful to God when you're in one of these places? So Moses is on a mountain with God where he's there for 40 days. And while he is there, the people have decided, hey, we don't know if Moses is going to come back. So let's just build an idol for ourselves. 
And they start worshiping these idols that they're saying, hey, these are the gods that brought us out of Egypt. And it's, they're even worshiping Yahweh there. And in chapter 32, they're worshiping God too. And it's a time in their lives when it was like, hey, if we just slap the name religion or spirituality on something, surely God will tolerate it, which we do a lot today too, right? Let's just make it sound spiritual and surely God will just tolerate what it is. But as they're there, I just want to place this statement in front of you because it's true for them and it's true for us too. A season of losing focus can lead you to a moment of disobedience which can result in a lifetime of consequences. And this isn't that God is not gracious and forgiving and merciful. But the reality is a season of losing your focus can lead to a moment of disobedience which can result in a lifetime of consequences. Because I've taught this for years. There's no such thing as a private sin in your life that doesn't have an impact on everyone else around you. You may think the things that are done in private don't hurt other people, but it, it ends up hurting who you are. Therefore, it stunts your growth, which keeps you from having the impact on other people around you that God wants you to have. So for them, and, and especially whenever I have a chance to speak to teenagers and, and college students and young adults, something I often talk to people about is you've got to, at a young age, take seriously the foundation you are building in your life. Because if you wait until the storms of life hit to try to build your foundation, it's probably going to be too late. People don't have a lot of success trying to build a foundation in the midst of a storm. It doesn't work well. It's hard to build a levee when the flood has already come. Take seriously your foundation so that when there are seasons of, of losing focus, you have something you can fall back on, something you can stand on, a firm foundation. These people had been out of slavery for a few months and they were losing it, losing their focus. There's a moment of disobedience and for all of the people there, for them, there's going to be a lifetime of consequences. And then you have this conversation that happens if you look in your Bibles in Exodus 32, beginning in verse 10. And this is God. Now leave me alone. It's like God saying, just let me be by myself so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them and then I will make you into a great nation. I want to stay there just for a moment because you get the sense that God is struggling and wrestling with Moses to discern what he's going to do with the people's disobedience. And to me, this is a beautiful picture of, of God in relationship. That God is revealing himself as a relational God. And any time in a relationship you experience any form of rejection or betrayal or hurt or pain, you've got to discern, how are we going to move forward from this? So here's God saying, hey, I'm going to wipe out these people. And God's also saying, I'm going to protect you. So God's not giving up on his promise. God's going to continue. There's going to be some kind of people come out of this to fulfill the promise of God. But then I want you just to watch how Moses responds to God. It takes a lot of courage to do something like this. In verse 11, but Moses sought the favor of the Lord as God. Lord, he said, why should your anger? And now Moses is going to like remind God, not that God needs reminders, but remind God of his promises. So Moses says this, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt, the great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it is with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. And here's what he says. Literally, it's this. Moses is telling God this, change your mind and do not bring disaster on your people. 
Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land. I promise them, and it will be their inheritance forever. And verse 14 is this. Then the Lord changed his mind and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Now, to me, this is a beautiful relationship, this moment where God and Moses are trying to sort out How's God going to move forward with his people? And how are the people going to move forward with God? Now, there are a few different ways people interpret this. Now, there are some who believe in the sovereignty of God. And that God is all-knowing. So God already knew everything that was going to happen. So actually, what, what God is doing here is God is testing Moses Even though God knows what Moses is going to do and what he's going to do with the people, he's testing Moses to see how Moses is going to respond to God as a person of faith. And then there are people who also believe and teach that in God's sovereignty, God knows how the story is going to end. God knows how God's going to bring things to completion. God knows how God is going to restore all things. Yet because God has given people free will, there are times he lets them make decisions and then God responds based on how people act and what they do. And it never is going to hurt. It's not going to hurt God's cosmic plan and how God is bringing all things to fulfillment, how God has victory in the resurrection of Jesus. So there are those who teach that in this moment, God's actually entering into human relationship to decide how God's going to respond. However you believe, this is a beautiful moment though, right? That God's not going to give up on his people. But how they move forward is not going to look like what it was like in the past. So there you have this moment in verse 14. It says, the Lord changes his mind. And now you're left with these questions. And here are some of these that I think they had then. And some of you have these same questions in your life now. Either based on grief that has happened in your life or pain or sin or whatever it may be. What's the relationship going to be like between God and the people moving forward? How will God be present with his people moving forward? What kind of God is this? Which is why God's going to describe himself in chapter 34. How is this going to change God's approach to me or How is what I have done or what I've been through going to change how God approaches us? John Mark Mark Connor has become one of my favorite authors. And he tells a story about Scott McKnight, who is a professor up in Chicago, well-known theologian and scholar. And every year, Scott McKnight, for years, Scott McKnight taught a freshman Bible class. And at the beginning of each semester, he would give all of his students two surveys. The first survey was for the students and was asking them questions like, what do you like and what do you not like? What do you believe? What are you for? What are you against? Questions like that. And then he would give them a second survey with the exact same questions, but they were supposed to answer it for Jesus. So the first time they did the survey, they're answering it for themselves as students. The second time he gave them the survey, it's, hey, this, okay, for Jesus, what is Jesus like? What does Jesus believe? Who is Jesus for? Who is Jesus against? And what Scott McKnight goes on to say is that 90% of the time, the answers were the exact same. Is, is that shocking to any of you? Or are you like, yeah, I can see how that could happen. Because this, this happens in life a lot. Like we get passionate about something and then really passionate about it. And then we put fuel on that passion and become even more passionate about it to the point where we're like, man, I'm so passionate about this. This seems what is right. So surely God's just as passionate about this as I am. 
Or here are the two issues that are most important to me, and surely these are the issues that are most important to God too. And there are those who go on to say things like, you know you've created God in your own image when God loves all the same people you do and hates all the same people you do. Right? We can get so passionate about things that we think we know exactly who God is and we want God to see the world through our worldview instead of pausing to let God shape us into his. Is this going to change how God's approach, how he approaches us and our future? In chapter 33, verse 12, and I have these wrong on the slide. It's chapter 33, verse 12. Moses is upset with the people. He's upset with the leaders. And then you read these, this. Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you're pleased with me, teach me your way so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. And here's God's response in thirty-three, fourteen. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And then verse 15, Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish with me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? This is so, this is so beautiful to me. Because for Moses as a leader, he's like, man, God, I... I don't mind leading these people. And you said you're not going to devour them. But as we move forward, if you're not going to go with us, don't even let us go because it's not even worth it. I pray this prayer all the time as a leader. God, don't lead this church into a vision if you're not going to go with us. Don't give us an idea to try to live into if your presence isn't with us and for us and on us and in front of us and behind us. And here's Moses doing the same thing. So let me me go at, at it like this for you. In chapter 32, 33, and 34, there are references to the wrath of God. Now, how God describes himself is not that God is a God full of wrath. God describes himself as a God who is slow to anger. So though wrath is a part of the nature of God, if you read throughout the Bible, wrath is not a continuous part of God's nature. It's not that God wakes up every day Like ready to retaliate on people who do wrong. There's not a loving parent in the world who does that. I don't wake up every day thinking, man, I really hope Truett Noah lie today because I can't wait to wear them out for it. Or I hope Truett Noah are bad in church so that we can ground them from electronics for the rest of the week. Wouldn't that be awesome? So it's not that God is just eager to spill out wrath, but it is part of his nature. Now, here's something, too, about God's nature. And this is something that we've got to take a little more seriously in our lives. There is nowhere in the Bible where you get the sense that God just shrugs at any sin in the world. As if God's like, "Ah, I mean, mean, that's really not that big of a deal, so let's not come down hard on that. There's not a time where you sense God just shrugging his shoulders at sin. Though we can do this quite a bit. We can shrug our shoulders and say stuff like, I mean, it's just boys being boys will grow out of it. We can shrug our shoulders and say, I mean, it was just a little bit of gossip. It's not like that's going to hurt anybody. It was just a little bit of porn. It wasn't even hardcore porn. I mean, it's not going to make them into a mass murderer. It's just cheating on one line of taxes. It's not going to make them into a drug dealer or somebody who does evil things for the rest of their lives. God never shrugs his shoulders at sin. 
So one way somebody told me a while back, somebody, the, the way they were teaching about sin and even the wrath of God was this. A lot of times in our lives, we suffer not for our sin, but from our sin. Meaning that it's not that God is waiting every day to unleash consequences on you because of your sin. But usually when you sin, like God's not having to get really creative with how to respond to that or, or have consequences to it. For most of us, there are going to be consequences that just come with it. It's just part of it. But if I'm assuming for this church, I don't think most of you struggle every day with a fear of the wrath of God coming on you. Now, especially for those who are raised in more legalistic settings, this was, this was just a part of communication regularly. Now, hopefully more of us have grown to appreciate stuff like in Romans 8, 1, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For those who are in Jesus, who have a passion in your life to remain faithful, the wrath of God is not something you need to fear. The wrath of God is something that's going to set the world right. This is a, it can be a good thing. But if I had to guess for most, more of you in this room, it's not a fear or concern about the wrath of God that you struggle with. It's a fear or concern about distance with God that you struggle with. It's a fear or concern of being ignored by God. It's a fear or concern that we serve a God who loves all humans, but he doesn't like them. And I think Moses is addressing both of them here. But I think Moses is concerned in chapter 33, not with God's wrath, but with God's presence. Like, how close are you going to be with us as we try to go into a new land? Like, are you just going to be hovering out there somewhere and every once in a while you come down? Or, or God, are you going to be with us every single step of the way? Isn't this what you want this week? Not just to know that God's going to kind of hover over your week, but that God can be involved in every single moment of your life. Every single moment of your day. Moses wanted to experience God's glory, so that's, that's, what, that's his request. God, show me your glory. Uh, let me pause right here uh, for me. This is going to be the last sermon you're going to hear from me in a few weeks. Uh, I've just completed my 11th year as the preacher of this church, and at the end of 11 years, every minister is allowed a four-week sabbatical, so I'm about to take one. So I'm going to be gone most of July. Um. I'm excited about this. I hope for those of you who've had a stressful year that you find some rest in your life somehow. I'm thankful for leaders who have some expectations for us as ministers that we're not running sprints. We're in this for a marathon and we need to take care of ourselves. It's been a pretty crazy year for Casey and I, so we're excited about some rest. I want to give you just a few things to pray over me as I leave. And here, here's what they are. I'll, I'll just put all of them in one slot. Pray for rest. Because as a family, we're not really good at it. Will you pray for clarity and vision for me? As a person, a disciple, a minister, a church leader. Clarity and vision. I need you to pray for God to give me courage because you don't need to follow a leader who doesn't have it. I need you to pray for God to give us great joy because you cannot be a witness for Jesus in the world without it. I want you to pray for me and my family to have a lot of fun. We're in need of it. Laughter can do a family a lot of good. And I want you to be careful how you pray this sixth one. But I need, I need God to give me some gospel burdens. A burden for lost people. A burden for people disconnected from Jesus. 
a burden for the people Jesus spent the large majority of his time seeking after. Because this isn't a, just a burden that I need, but it's a burden the leaders of this church need and this church, is, this church needs. And if you want to, you can ask God to show me his glory just like God showed Moses God's glory. And even though I want you to be careful when you pray that, I believe in the goodness of God that if God reveals or what he reveals, it's going to be for my benefit and for the formation of the church. Now, I want you to watch what God does. Because Moses says in verse 18, show me your glory. And in verse 19, God's response is, I'm going to let my goodness come before you. Moses asked for glory. God responds with goodness. Now, is God's glory good? You bet. Is God's goodness glorious? It is. But how God responds to Moses in this request and how God describes himself in verse 30, chapter 34, God describes himself with attributes and characteristics that every human can have in their life too. God responds with goodness. When God describes himself in chapter 34, what God says is the Lord, the Lord, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that is the part that is repeated by the Bible more than anything else. He's compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So over the next few weeks, even though I won't be here, next week there's going to be a worship experience for you, leading you through chapter 33, 34. The next few weeks you're going to hear from uh, Mark Powell, Stoney Ramsey, Seth and Jenna King, Jim Hinkle, as they unpack line by line of this. Now, I planned this months months ago for my sabbatical for people to preach and then the further I got into it I was like I don't want other people to preach this this is so good like I want to save this for me one day but we're not going to do that so I know the word of God is going to be delivered with great power let me end with this what I love about what God does in chapter 32 through 34 is that God is not just discovering ways to set people straight God is thinking about how he's going to propel his people forward Like, how am I going to move these people into a free land? And God does the same for you too. There is a passion of God, a desire of God to set us straight when we are off. But it's never just to set us straight for the sake of setting us straight. It's setting us straight so that God can propel us forward. So Andy Downs is an author I've been reading a lot of recently. I really like her. I think Andy and Casey and I would be really good friends. And Annie, in a book I was reading, just told the story of when she was baptized and immersed. And she was, she was a young adult when she was baptized. She was actually on a mission trip in Scotland. And she was in Scotland, and there were some younger people who said they wanted to be baptized one night. So there was a lake, or one day, they, there was a lake, and the lake's name, she wasn't joking, the lake's name was Loch Ness. That's the name of the lake. But she said, when I heard the name, I thought, I'm not really sure I want to be baptized in a lake called Loch Ness. But, I mean, what better way to die than when you're dying with Christ? Might as well be gone, right? They showed up that day. The temperature of the lake was 52 degrees. It's cold. She didn't bring a swimsuit, so she went out there in some yoga pants and I think a long T-shirt. And you had to walk quite a ways just to get out into the water far enough where you could be immersed. And there were two church leaders who were baptizing people when she got out there. 
So she waded through this cold water, and when she got there, she said they were speaking blessings over her and preparing her for the moment. And she said she looked up at them, and she asked this. From this moment, everything is going to change, right? And they said, yes, everything's going to change. I don't think you are in need of encounters with God every single day where you're reminded that everything has to change from that moment, but you do need multiple of these throughout your life to know that these encounters with God change us forever. So whether for you it's a need today to be baptized into Christ where everything changes for you moving forward or a place in your life where you just need God to pronounce change as you move forward, we have a prayer time. If elders and prayer leaders will go around the room to receive people, they are here for you. And we have a song that we're going to sing as a declaration. If there's anything we can do for you, please come forward to find one of our leaders or around this room to one of our prayer leaders. Let's stand together and let's sing a song.